0: morning. Thank you, Ken. (laughs) Ken's always good for a good hearty. Good morning. You know, I learned about status when I went to college. I, uh, I always wanted to play football in college and I went to a little bitty Christian high school down in South Miami and, uh, and I was a pretty good place kicker, and I had some little small-time offers uh, to play in little schools. And I said, you know, you know I want to make it in the big leagues, right? I want to make it in Division One A, you know. And uh, so I followed my brother out to Dallas, and I went to Southern Methodist University, which at the time, don't know laughing, at the time was a powerhouse. And I walked on to the football team, and I learned this really cool thing about a lot of big-time college football programs that you don't know, that a lot of people don't know, and that is that they don't cut anybody. So pretty much if you want to walk on, you can be on the team, but the rules are a little different for the, the players and the players, if you know what I mean. Well, I was one of the players, and, uh, uh, but not one of the players. My freshman year, they red-shirted me, and we didn't even get to suit up for the games. Okay? The big treat for us was that we got to suit up for two football games. We got to put our pads on and stand on the sideline for homecoming and for, like, parents' day or something like that. That was the only times I got to put on my uniform. We practiced with everybody. We did all the stuff. We kicked, I kicked in practice. I did all the drills. I did all the conditioning and everything else. But I was like a nobody. You talk about the nobody of nobodies. Red shirt, walk-on, freshman place kicker. Nobody. We, um, we would get tickets to the games. That was our big Benny. So we could go watch the team play the game. I mean, it was a little humiliating to even go. So you're trying to brag about it. Well, I got tickets to the game. Well, aren't you on the team? Well... Well, yeah, but, you know, I'm just getting my feet wet, you know? I'm just trying it out a little bit. So anyway, it was really pretty ridiculous. It was pretty preposterous, this whole freshman scenario. Uh, Certainly when it came to status, you had zero, you had none, right? But here's the deal. Football in and of itself has status, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So here's what happens. Like my first week at school, it's rush week, right? You know what that is? When all the fraternities and sororities are trying to recruit the new freshmen coming in, right? Well, I didn't even want to be in a fraternity, but there's all these parties, and my dorm was right next to Fraternity Row, so I grabbed a couple of my roommates, and so I go, let's go to these parties. And they're like, uh, we didn't know you were supposed to be invited to these parties, right? So, so we get all dressed up, and we go to the first house closest to our door. I think it was like the ATO house or something, and I, I am not making this up. Redshirt walk-on freshman place kicker. Nobody. We walk up to the door, and a guy starts to stop us, to tell us that you have to be invited to this affair, And another guy goes, he's on a football team. Let him in. They let me in the party because I was on the football team, right? I did not mention redshirt freshman walk-on place kicker. I just went in and they had to let my friends come with me. Why? Because I had status. That's right preposterous. So I got to go to all these parties because I was on the football team. People wanted me to be in their fraternity because I was on the football team. I even remember this. Remember I told you we got to dress up for two games a year? We played in Texas Stadium, right? So we suited up. I did not have a speck of dirt on me. I did not even sweat at this game, okay? I mean, they probably didn't even wash my uniform. They probably just took it off, put it back in the thing for the next, you know, for Parents' Day. And so... So we come out of the tunnel with the rest of the team, and of course we showered up for no good reason, but you know we did. So I come out with the other freshmen, right? We come out of the tunnel, there's people lining the tunnel, and guess what they want from me? An autograph! Okay? So there's like eight nine-year-old boys out there in the world somewhere, they're not nine anymore, but that have Matt Lominick, number 29, autograph on their football program that day and we used to we were on what we called the scout team which was a team that played against the real team you know and you just get the stink beat out of you because the real team already knew your plays and everything so we were writing stuff on there like scout team all-american you know things like that and they just kids thought it was the greatest thing in the world I learned a lot about status that day I learned number one that status is very real and number two and in, in, in the world's terms it is basically entirely meaningless Right? Tonight's the Oscars. We're going to see all these beautiful people walking down the red carpet, right? And then tomorrow, there's going to be the tabloid with one of them in a bikini with the fat hanging out and everything else. And we learn about status. The world loves status and we hate status, right? We love to admire it, but we envy it because we want it and we don't have it. Status. Well, we've been talking about status. We've been talking about our place in the world and what our money is for and what our possessions are for and not finding our security in those things. But in, but, in, but in our relationship with Christ. We've been talking about the world's status, but today I want to talk about status in the church. In the walls of this church. I'm going to tell you right up front, I've been involved in a lot of churches, and this is not a church that, that really pushes status. Now, you may be sitting there and go, I don't think so, this happened to me, or whatever. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you that as churches go, this is not a church that pushes status. Tom is the most egoless guy in the world. As he's the greatest boss you could ever have because he's got no ego. He just, he's he's a part of the team, but he's the leader, right? So this is a great church. So I don't want you to think I'm preaching this because I have specific thoughts about our church. But I will tell you this. Being a part of the church with a capital C my whole life, I know that for us as individual believers, there is a real danger to be lured into a false sense of security because of your status in the community. You know, I we had to make a new church bulletin. Okay, because we had that little one pager and we were getting comments like useless, stuff like that. Um, So we we made a double fold, huh? How about that, huh? You like that? Notes on the back. Dan Smith, if you're in here, it's not on shiny paper, so your pen will work. I tested it out myself. See, we respond. We get the things, we respond. But you know what? I opened this thing up and I looked at it and man, we ask you to do a lot of stuff you know we made a bigger bulletin? Because we didn't have enough room for the stuff. There's too much stuff going on. I can't get enough stuff on one half piece of paper. have got to put it on two feet double sided. This thing used to be five pages long. It was ridiculous. We have problems trying to figure out how to do announcements every week because there's so much stuff that we ask you to do, right? You're supposed to gather. You're supposed to plug in. You're supposed to serve. And under every one of those, there's like 50 different things that you're supposed to do as part of those things. And you know what's amazing about this church is that many, many, many of us are doing those things. We're gathering, we're plugging in, we're serving, we know the drill, we come to worship, we know how to dress, we know the songs, we know how to stand, when to stand, uh, we know what to do at worship. We plug in. We're in a community group. I mean, I'm serious when I say this is unheard of. Like 70% of our church is in a community group every week. That's unbelievable. That is like a church's dream. 70% of our regular attenders are going to some community group throughout the week. It's unbelievable. It's awesome. We should be, we should be excited about that. But then there's Bible studies, accountability groups, your kids in the student ministry, your kids in KidQuest, you're supposed to be discipling them. Maybe you even do the devotional with your kid every week. Things, 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 stuff to do, stuff to do, part of the community, things that identify you with the community. And then, of course, there's the big one for me, right? The one I love, serve. Sign up in the back for a simple way to serve. Go to Haiti for a bigger way to serve. Be a leader on a team to give your life away for the rest of it and serve forever. Serve with a capital S, serve, 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 gather, plug in, serve, grow in your relationship with Christ by gathering, plugging in, serving, do, 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 lots of stuff, and what happens, what happens, if you're here, and you're here for long enough, maybe you start feeling a little awkward if you're not gathering, plugging in, and serving somehow, right, you're like, oh, I didn't go to church, or oh, I showed up late, I'm not gathering properly, you know, Plugging in, well, our group wants to meet every other week. No, you can't meet every other week. It's got to be every other week because you're building community with each other and you're taking care of each other. How can you do that if you meet every other week and you miss one week and you miss a whole month? Oh, God, community group. Got to do community group. I got to do that better. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not learning enough. I'm having problems with my marriage. Oh, no, I got to go get in this life work thing and become every week for 30 months I have to do this thing. Things, 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 and then serve. Same kind of deal. So here we are, we're in the church and we've got all this stuff we do. But here's what happens. If you don't do all that stuff, you start feeling a little awkward. So then you move into it and you start getting involved. The next thing you know, you're on it, man. You're a part of Rio Vista Community Church. You've been to Starting Point class. You've joined. You're doing lots of things. You're involved. You're gathering. You're plugging in and you're serving. And you're good, right? Your life is fixed, right? It's better. Your marriage is fixed. You're happy. You don't care about your stuff anymore. I lost my job, but it's no problem because I'm gathering, plugging in, and serving. It's all good, right? Economy? Whatever. The stuff doesn't fix it, does it? We did a lot of stuff for Haiti. It didn't fix Haiti, did it? We have homeless people come in here. We don't fix them. They don't walk out the door changed forever, most of the time. So what are we doing? What are we doing? What is all this about? That's what we're going to talk about today. And that's what Jesus talked about when he went to a party. Jesus said that to gain our life, we have to lose it. He said that many times and in many ways throughout the scriptures, and it's been interpreted in many ways. A lot of times it's interpreted to mean you need to be selfless, right? You need to be humble. You need to give away everything and only, you know, only use everything for God's glory, all these kinds of things. Well, you know what we do? We take all these things, like you have to find your, in order to find your life, you have to lose it, and we attach all these rules to what that means, to find your life by losing it, right? And then if we obey the rules, guess what? We have spiritual status. We're a part of the religious nobility that is the church. Well, Jesus has been spending a lot of time in Jerusalem, and guess what Jerusalem was? It was the epicenter of religious activity for what we today would understand as the church, but as he was in Jerusalem, he encountered a real, a significant disconnect between him and what he was preaching and the leadership, the religious nobility of this church community. Because what he saw was this deeply entrenched social hierarchy, right? It had activities, it had associations, there were officers, there were, there were, there were uh, uh, groups to be involved with that, uh, that assigned you certain levels of, of, of height on the pecking order. They were the spiritual elite, and to some extent, the church was considered, every one of them, if I'm in this church, if I'm a part of this community, I'm in the spiritual elite, man. Now, by the way, they weren't jerks. They weren't way more arrogant than you and I are. They just, that was their worldview, man. We are in the spiritual elite. We are the invited ones, man. God has invited us. He told our father Abraham that he was going to make a great nation, and the whole world was going to be blessed through us. We're the invited ones, man. We've been invited to the party. So this is the condition in which he walks into. So Jesus does what he does so well. He starts leaning into this subculture. And he begins to to compare and contrast it to the kingdom of God. The true, spiritual, eternal, unchangeable kingdom that he has inaugurated. He starts comparing it and contrasting it to that. Well, you know, he's not surprised by their response, which is not always good. He knew that this resistance was going to be part of his redemptive work, okay? He knew that he was going to encounter this because that's what he came to do. He came into the world to confront that which was broken and restore it, bring renewal. He's come to be a living contrast to the status on the world's terms. And in this moment, what you're about to hear, he confronts the church for being influenced by the world. So what he does is he tells a parable when he's at a party, okay? He's just been invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. Now, this was a big deal. It wasn't just like, hey, come over for dinner. When you had a meal, it was about status. It was about honor and shame. And when you got to that meal, that was honor in and of itself. But once you got there, well, now it was what? Where do you get to sit? How many of you go to charity banquets? I go to a million. I go to a million charity banquets. And you come in and, right, there's tables set up. And what do they have on the tables? You got a number, right, right? And there's some that are right up front, and there are some that are way in the back, right? Right? Well, there's a little piece of the brain that goes, where did they put me? Now, I think they just sort of put you at random wherever you fit, but there's a little part of that human brain that goes, well, where's my status here? Am I in the back by the door where the waiters come out, or am I up close to the front? Is the speaker, who's at my table, a bunch of nobodies? Well, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus was observing when he got invited to this Pharisee's house for dinner. It was the pecking order happening right before his eyes. It was people um, finding their place, looking for that seat of honor, establishing their status, and sizing him up. Could you imagine that? How would you like to find out, after you knew about the whole deal, that you were sizing Jesus up? You'd just be glad he didn't like, you know, pow, you know something like that. <laughs> he didn't do that kind of stuff, generally. But... Um, They were sizing him up. They were watching what he did. And here's what they were doing. I mean, I'm making this sound real dirty, like you and I would never do such a thing. But, you know, um, here's what they were doing. They were just looking to see if he fit in the community, right? They wanted to know if he knew the rules. Did he know how to walk, talk, act? Does he dress right? Does he know what to say? Does he know the law? Where does he belong? Where is this Pharisee going to seat him at the table? Because when we see where he is seated... Then we'll know where he stands. So then what Jesus does uh, throughout Luke 14, and in your study guide, you'll see it recommends that you read that whole chapter, but he just sort of starts doing what he does, man. He starts poking them and prodding them at the heart of the matter. He starts just poking them right at that social hierarchy thing, right at that spiritual elite. He starts going, hey, you know what? Instead of coming and sitting at the head of the table and risking getting bumped by by the master and sent to the back of the table, start at the back of the table. He says, hey, when you have a dinner like this, don't invite all your fancy friends. Invite the poor. Because they won't be able to pay you back. Your friends will, but that's all you'll get. You'll just get invited to another dinner. If you invite the poor, God will pay you back. Ooh, he's, he's, he's just digging at them. He was at least digging at the ones who were, who, were, who were preoccupied with their social order in their church. So then he comes to this parable, and this is the, sort of the climax of this little teaching time he has. The parable of the great banquet goes like this. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.'" So what purpose would he have a banquet for? Well, back in those days, you had a, pan- a banquet for, to, to sort of signify an important event, okay? Maybe it was a wedding, or maybe your child was coming of age, or you had had a big business deal come through, or, or maybe you were just having a big party to establish your status, right? I have arrived. Everybody come and enjoy the fruits of my prosperity, right? So they know this, but here's what else they know when they hear this story. They know that the master in this story is God, And they know that Jesus is the servant or the messenger. They also know that all those prophets that over the years they had rejected and killed, those are the messenger. When he uses that word messenger, that stings. They say, all those people that you guys ran off and killed over the years and ignored. And by the way, I am the chief prophet. Well, they knew that that's what Jesus was saying. And And then they knew that the church, that at the time the nation of Israel... Were the invited. When it says he invited them, it doesn't just mean he gave an invitation, it means he declared them the invited. Well, it's a status thing, right? I am the invited. The invitation to God's banquet has a very specific offer attached to it. And this is what Jesus was getting ready to lay on these Pharisees that they weren't going to like too much, at least some of them. The invitation to God's banquet is an offer to waive your debt and to inherit his kingdom. Now think about that. What if that's what this man was offering for all these invited ones, all these people? Maybe they were business partners. They were people that owed him money. And he invited them to his party because they love him, right? They have relationships. I mean, can't we assume that the reason they were the invited ones is because they shared some commonalities that would cause them to be in relationship with this man? So he invites them... But little do they know that the reason he's inviting them is to waive their debts and give them a part of his inheritance. So, what do they do? But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. You bought a field. And now you're going to go check it out. It's a good business skill. Uh, even I know that you're supposed to look at it before you buy it. But I bought a field and I have to go see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And then finally, another said, I have a, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So these three people symbolize some excuses. As I said, we can presume that there was some relationship that the the, the, the master had with these people, but they all had excuses for not coming to the party. So what does that say about their real relationship with the master? There's something wrong with their heart toward their master. Because after all, why would you refuse the invitation to the master's banquet with excuses like this? Now, I poo-pooed these things and said, oh, well, they're just telling lies. Well, maybe they're not. You know, let me tell you the essence of the two excuses that were made. They were about business dealings and relationships, intimate relationships. Hey, I just got married. I got to spend time with my new bride. Hey, you know, I've got these, these business dealings and, you know, I have a lot of people that depend on me. And if I don't go check this out and make sure everything's in an order, then, uh, you know, I, I just don't have time. I'm sorry. I can't do it. I'm just, I'm too busy and I've got too much going on. There's too many things relying on these business transactions. Boy, that And so they they ask to be excused from the party. So the true nature of their relationship is that something is missing in their heart toward the master. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people who are engaged and preoccupied with the busyness of religious life. So here's the offer that he's making to them. That they are maybe to some extent not realizing they're rejecting. Attendance at this banquet is based on a response to his invitation for forgiveness from their sins, submission to his authority, and commitment to continued building of his kingdom. That's the invitation of the gospel. That's the invitation of God. That's the invitation that Jesus came to announce. In other words, it's not based on what they do or their status as the invited ones. It's based on the condition of their heart toward God. Separate from the heart, nothing else matters. It's all worthless. So then, so then this is what happens next. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said to him, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now, there's an easy place to go here, and it's, it's, it's a good place. It's a true place. God says that in His kingdom, at His banquet, there will be the least, the lost, the left out. God says that at His party, sitting around that table with the religious, with the invited ones, with the religious nobility, will be the lame, the crippled, the blind, the least, the lost, the left out. They'll be there, but you know what? Then He says, that didn't fill my table either, so... So how am I going to fill it? And he sends them out into the streets to get who? Anyone who will come. Sometimes people walk through these doors. Sometimes they walk through the doors at the wrong time. In the wrong way. Doing the wrong things. Dressed the wrong way. Sometimes they walk through these doors on a Sunday morning. Sometimes they walk through these doors during a school day. And of course, we have safety concerns and things like that that common sense says we have to be concerned with. But but those people, when they come through the doors, those are the results of the master sending the servant out into the streets to get them and bring them here. So how does that inform who we are at Rio and who we should be inviting to the banquet? And I don't mean stupidly. I don't mean in ways that are dangerous or jeopardize um, our safety, our security. Unless that what he would call us to do, but that's another matter entirely. Who might we see in and around our church community, that's our world, and in and around our personal lives, that's my world, as we grow in this understanding and practice? The answer is this, it's everyone who would come. Everyone who would come is who we should be inviting. And you know, we're, we're We're good at that and we're getting better. But here's the hard part. Okay, that sounds great, right? Sounds good. But what might change about Rio and what might change about your world if these people started taking you up on your offer and coming to check out the party? Well, I will tell you, it gets messy. At times it gets awkward. It gets inconvenient. It gets radically different than we're used to. But somehow, the author of our faith was eternally, infinitely comfortable in the middle of the mess. Are we ready for that? Do we know how to do that? Must we work toward that? Yes. So finally, he gives a proclamation. The master says this, For I tell you, not one of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Not one of the invited ones, not one of the religious uh, no, elite, not one of the ones who were doing all the things will taste my banquet. The master's proclama- proclamation is simply this. It's possible to fully expect to taste the banquet But ultimately, find no seat at the table. It is possible to be fully engaged in your church and religious and spiritual life. It is possible for it to be a perfect spoke in the wheel of a perfectly well-rounded life. For you to receive accolades and, and compliments about your faith. It's possible for all of those pieces of the puzzle to be there as far as encouraging you that you're doing the right thing. And for you to be absolutely out on the street. It's all about receiving God's forgiveness, submitting to his authority, committing to the building of his kingdom, the condition of your heart. And you know what that does? It takes all these things in our bulletin and it puts them in their proper place. And it tells you what you should and should not do. It tells you what in this season in your life you can and cannot do because you have those fundamental questions to ask. Am I doing this out of a response in my heart for God? Am I doing this to grow in my maturity and understanding of him and his kingdom? And is my work through this really my thing that is building his kingdom? If it is not, it's worthless. I, uh, if you know me for very long, you know that that I went through a real hard time in my life. I was a pastor, and then I ended up going and being a construction worker. And when I did that, I was at the lowest of the low, and, um, and I had to start at the bottom. I remember the owner of our company saying, man, you know what? He was a Christian, and he said, look, I could give you a higher position, and just because, you know, I love you, but, but, man, construction's a meritocracy, right? If I do that, you'll get eaten alive. You've got to start at the bottom. You've got to start picking up trash, right? So I remember that first year I was making, like, no money. I was at the bottom of the barrel. I didn't even get to eat in the trailer. You know, I had to, like, sit out in the dirt and eat and stuff like that. And we got an invitation, a really nice one, to the company Christmas party. I mean, it was a beautiful invitation. Free valet. <laughs> I, t- I tipped. It was at the JW Marriott, I think, on on Brickell Avenue, and it was beautiful. And we were so excited. It was months away. We got the invitation in like September for December 1st or something like that. We were so excited. We were dirt poor. We went out and figured out a way to buy new clothes. I was asking around at the work site, and, 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 you know, are you going, are you going? And it was funny. There were some guys, a lot of guys were like, "Ah, I'm not going. I'm not going again. It's too far. It's too fancy. It's not fancy enough. It's a bunch of political junk. So they weren't very excited, but I'm like, well, forget them. We're going, man, and Dee Dee's all excited, and we get all dressed up and fancy, and we were the first ones there, literally. We go in, and they have this big reception area, and they're serving hors d'oeuvres, and there's nobody but us. So it's like two of us and like eight people bringing us different hors d'oeuvres and drinks. We're just, high, ah, woo, high and We think it's the greatest thing we've ever seen, we go into this banquet hall, and it's spectacular. It's giant with the crystal chandeliers, and there's all these courses of meals, and, and everybody's all fancy, and there's the owner of the company up at the front, and we're in the back, and that's fine. And, but, because we're just glad to be in the room, man. Couldn't believe we'd been invited to this banquet. But then we got invited the next year and the next year, and I noticed that my attitude began to change toward the banquet. But you know what? We went to that banquet every year, dressed in our best, because every year I could not escape the feeling we had that first, that first banquet. And the heart that I had for the man who invited me, Everything you do in this church should be motivated by that heart and that spirit and that response to the Master who invited you, who waived your debt and unconditionally, by the grace of His Son and His death on the cross, gave you His inheritance. We live in a banquet. We live in the kingdom of God. We're building it right now. And that is the heart of those who are invited and those who come to the banquet. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we prepare to come to this table, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reach into our hearts and would examine them and help us to think through, not out of guilt or shame, but just out of uh, sheer practicality of, of, of seeking to understand our faith in you, that you would lay our hearts open to take this Lord's Supper and remember that first meal whereby we laid down and reclined with the Master. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're taking.